Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. We're looking together at the next psalm in a series as we continue uh, working our way through the psalms. And Psalm 69 is an interesting psalm, if only because it's one of the most quoted in the New Testament. Peter, Paul, and John all use this psalm in understanding something of who Jesus is and what the Christian life is about. Our Lord himself quotes this psalm seven times in the Gospels, and so we do well uh, to pay attention. But beyond just sort of a statistical approach, we can, can recognize in this psalm an emotional grappling with sin. And that means Psalm 69 is relevant to each one of us here, to you and to me, and the daily Christian lives in which we live. It's also a psalm that is full of curses. And so, given that we live in a falling world, and given that we are tempted to curse even to excess, we do well to read this psalm, which expresses both our upset and also our disturbed conscience at hearing our own words. And then finally, it's also a psalm of praise. It ends with a cry of universal adoration that is even louder than the opening distress that first hits our ears. So come, let us hear the word of the Lord with open hearts. Psalm 69, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh, God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal zeal, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies 
and from the deep waters, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and may their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they count the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the prayers of the needy and does not despise his own who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. The people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Amen. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, we ask now that your word, inspired and true, would not just be open in our laps, but indeed that it would penetrate deep into our hearts. May the arrow of your word, may it reach as deep and as profound as the division between bone and sinew in us. And our whole heart, our whole life, our whole being, may your word teach, inform, and transform us more into the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me let you in on a secret that only preachers and theologians really know. Did you know that all commentaries are not created equal? That as a matter of fact, there are loads of commentators out there that are sub 
Christian in the way that they think. They read Psalm 69 and they face a quandary. They're quite upset. On the one hand, they recognize, because all of the citation in the New Testament, on the lips of Jesus Himself, that this psalm is all about Jesus and pointing to Him. On the other hand, right in the middle of the psalm, at the most awkward point, it's imprecatory. It's calling down hellfire and brimstone on evildoers. How can a psalm about Jesus talk about judgment, they say? Where is forgiveness? Where's the turning of the other cheek, they cry out. Many commentators falsely conclude that only some of Psalm 69 is suitably Christian. They're happy with the beginning and with the end of David's psalm. But that middle That judgment part, they quietly dismiss it as being trapped in Old Testament thinking. But those commentators need to think a little more themselves. They need to think a little bit more about Jesus. You you remember him, Jesus. He's not just the baby born in Bethlehem, meek and mild. He's not just the young lad who taught the leaders in the temple and Surprise them with his knowledge. He's not just the great teacher who said to forgive your enemies. That's true. He did say that. But he is also the prophet who spoke about hellfire and brimstone more than anyone else in the New Testament. He is also our great priest who prayed for his own and explicitly over and over again made it clear that he was praying for his sheep given to him by his father, not for those that were sons of the devil. He's also the king who will come again to fulfill every word of Psalm 69. Every word, even of the middle part of condemnation. And so in that gospel light, I hope we can all see together this evening that only Jesus can remedy our sin and shame. Only Jesus can remedy our sin and our shame. Now the the psalm opens with a call for us to hear Messiah cry. That may sound strange to you because the, the opening little introduction says to the choir master according to lilies of David. That doesn't say Jesus. Actually, it may not even say all that the translation says that it says. You know, the little of lilies part. That's highly disputed. Uh, It's one of those Old Testament Hebrew terms that, to be frank, we really don't know for absolute certainty what it means. They sometimes think it's a flower because, you know, when you don't know what it is, you always reach for some flower somewhere. Or it could also be a musical instrument, maybe one we haven't dug up yet, maybe one we don't have a sketch of, maybe maybe one we don't know the name of. And so it's called in some translation an instrument and in others a flower. It is explicitly a psalm of David. And so that sets it for us in time and somewhat in place. But David was not his own man. 
David was a man with a particular role to play in redemptive history. And so when David comes a singing, we do our listening to one who even in his own life was foreshadowing and typifying Jesus Christ our Lord. We hear Messiah cry as David begins and cries out, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire where there is no foothold. We hear Messiah cry for help, drowning on the one hand and crushed on the other. Well, our Scottish visitor this morning in church over, over lunch, he uh, quipped to me, said, you know, you certainly do have a little bit of rain here in Texas. I think he arrived the day, you know, that those dark clouds and that downpour came and, and we made up for an entire six months worth of uh, lack of rain all in, uh, in just a few hours. Uh, the, the whole business about going down the interstate and having those ticker marks, you know, that, uh, that show you how deeply you could be flooded uh, if you're there at the wrong place in the wrong time. That, that made quite an impression upon him. And I, I think it was my daughter who quipped, well, you fell right at home, huh? Because yes. it rains in Scotland a lot. But David is using under inspiration of the Spirit this language of drowning and of, and of the deep as a metaphor in order to describe his emotional distress And even that is a function just simply of the sheer danger in which he finds himself. He is one who is weary with his crying. His throat is parched because he's prayed so much and he has not yet been answered by God. His eyes are growing dim as he's losing his strength trying to wait on the Lord for his answer and his rescue. How are things so difficult? Well, in verse 4, we begin to realize more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, whose attack, who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? David finds himself accused and isolated. He finds himself under this crushing load. There are those who hate him and they spread lies about him. And this has given doubt arise in verse 5 to that natural result of self-doubt. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from your face. And yes, these are not just the words of David, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, having inspired these words by the power of His Spirit that He poured out upon David in advance. Once he came in incarnation, he took these words upon his own lips. He sung them with vigor before his heavenly Father in worship in the congregation, shoulder to shoulder with us as brothers and sisters. He sang these words aright of himself. Now, that's a bit of a quandary for us because we know Jesus is sinless, that that He's perfect and pure. He's the spotless Lamb of Calvary who gave His life on the tree that we might live. He propitiated the wrath of God against our sins. Our guilt, our transgression 
is paid for by His pure and good sacrifice. And even one sin, a sin in thought or word or deed, one sin in His life would have brought all of that to an end. He is God. He is the Son of God in the flesh. And so He is impeccable in His character. His human mind is in submission to His divine mind. Never one stray thought out of line with the will of His heavenly Father. But yet, just like David, He too is not just a private person. He is also a public person because He came as the Son of God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He came to identify with you and me He came to have hands and feet and and fingers and toes just like us. He came to be our brother since the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us in the second chapter. But more than just putting on a suit and taking a tour, he is one who came to represent us. He who is fully God also became truly man, fully man, a body and a soul, having a corporal aspect that we could see and touch and that could be nailed to a cross and through which He could suffer and die for the sins of many. But He also had an incorporal aspect, a soulish aspect. And their suffering is true and real as well because His heart was distressed as He wept over Jerusalem, as He faced rejection from His people, as He heard a false sentence pronounced against Him. He was not a guilty man, but yet they found Him guilty and they crucified Him for blasphemy and for treason and rebellion. He was our substitute as a whole sacrifice in body and in soul. And so the wrath of God was propitiated against the sin that we ourselves had caused. He drank that cup to the dregs. So how can He take such words upon His lips? How could Jesus ever sing in the congregation... Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden for you. David could sing those words. And we all quietly smile to ourselves and say, Oh yes, there was the census. And ah, oh, we can't forget about Bathsheba. Yes, he was a sinner. You see, I'm a little suspicious this evening that the crowd is as large as it is with no sandwich supper because of the title of the sermon My secret sins, inquiring minds want to know. But Jesus, He knew no sin. How is it that He could sing these words? Well, He can rightly sing them in His identification and representation of you and me. Just like He could be nailed to that cross and He could pay for our sins, O believer, so too He can take the distress and the anguish and the heartache of soul upon His lips in song before His heavenly Father. 
One great theologian has, I think, I suspect rightly said that in, in the crushing of his body on that tree on Calvary, in the physical and and downright human oppression as his life was being snuffed out, the emotional dimension and labor that he carried must have been so great that that line of distinction between himself and his own life and those that he represented must have become almost erased in his mind. I look forward to hearing more from him in the new heavens and the new earth as we are able to probe more deeply from the greatest of teachers how he suffered and how he died for our salvation. But Messiah is drowning. He's being crushed. And we find ourselves moved by his prayer. He continues on talking about another dimension of the cross. Talking about his being dishonored and being shamed in verses 6 to 12. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts, O God, Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. He goes on to say, I have become a stranger to my brother, an alien to my mother's sons. The reproach that fell upon him during the time of his humiliation was a reproach which he bore because of us. The great theologian Calvin said in his Institutes that from the moment of his conception, he began paying the price for our sins. And indeed that is true. Each and every step, each and every ache, each and every look, each and every innuendo, charge, and accusation. Each and every dart, as it were, of the tongue hurled at him by Pharisees and Sadducees, the whole of the Sanhedrin, all of these made him a spectacle of public dishonor and brought shame upon his face. He describes here alienation. Uh, the fact that, uh, that he is concerned about his own life bringing shame on others because dishonor has covered his face because he has identified himself with the cause of God. He speaks of abandonment that his own brothers and sisters, they, they have nothing to do with him anymore because he is one from whom they have turned away. And indeed on the cross, as his father turned his face away from him, he would have felt it so deeply. Verse 9 speaks of the zeal which consumed him for his father's house. And what did he get in return? But the projection of hatred of God on himself. The Son of God bearing lashes from those that hated God and hated Him in His identification with us 
and for his heavenly father. Oh, he was shamed. And in his shame, we find acceptance. In his shame and dishonor, we find welcome, do we not? In his dishonor and alienation, we find acceptance and robes of righteousness put upon us because of his goodness and his glory. Oh, Messiah, dishonored and shamed is the one who because of his identification with us fully in such a low condition is able to welcome us and accept us as adopted brothers and sisters true. Messiah here is crying and he's waiting for an answer. Verses 13 down to 21 are a restatement of his prayer, wrestling all the way through with the fact that God has not yet answered him. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. I don't talk about them. I I talk to you. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He is willing to, to wait and and to tip his hat to his father's sovereignty. He, he reminds himself in verse 16 of the goodness of God. That the steadfast love of God is good. And according to his abundant mercy. And the goodness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God. Keep the flicker of flame in his heart of hope alive even as he sinks down. Where does he find his comfort? You know my reproach, verse 19. And my shame and my dishonor, my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. All have abandoned me, but oh God, I cry to you. Hear David with words for the Messiah to sing over all his life and death are words pointing to the only source of comfort and of vindication for him. Even in the resurrection, the power of God calling him forth from the grave, raising him in the ascension triumphant, returning him to earth with all of his holy angels with him in a cloud that he may see them face to face and judge them by the power of his might as the Son of God incarnate, resurrected, living Lord. But then the psalmist turns and he calls us to smell the stench of death. Here's the little section in the middle that the commentators, so many of them, do not like. He cries out, David does, may they get as they have given in verses 22 and 23. You see, in verse 21, it speaks of those who hated David as seeking to poison him, of slipping or trying to slip something into his meat. Did y'all see it this week in the uh, in the press? 
the last living taste tester for Hitler finally gave an interview to the public press. And she described what she and a group of others who had been stolen from their hometown and and forced to do this work, she described what they went through, having to taste every portion of anything which might be given to the great Fuhrer. Of not knowing, of trembling and and, and in being in terror over whether they would die instantly or later that night of poison. David had known the terror of his enemies seeking to give him poison for his food. And so in verse 22 he says, Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. It's almost as if one of his taste testers had died in the attempted plot. And here he describes at some length the sad death that they suffered to protect him. May they get what they have given. David cries out in indignation against sin. And may they face the most terrifying thing in all the universe, he sings. In verses 24 to 28. May they fall into the hands of the living God. Pour out indignation upon them. May their camp be desolate. Add punishment to punishment for them. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. There we have our first hint that perhaps these are not Assyrians or Philistines, or Egyptians, or the sons of idol-worshipping pagans, but rather those may have even been those enrolled among Israel who had sought to undo him. But what is being called for here is not just ultimate judgment one day by and by, but rather it is even now... May God act now. May you answer my prayer in bringing judgment in this moment. And we see this in the life of Christ, do we not? For the one who betrayed him, his life was ended in disgrace and shame. And the powers that dared to lift their hand up against him they found themselves falling by the hand of a sovereign and mighty God. Oh, the smell and the stench of death is strong. And it is not just from David's pen, but also from the lips of Jesus as he speaks in judgment that is a foretaste and an hors d'oeuvre of the ultimate judgment to come. But that's not the only meal that's being served here in this text. It ends on an interesting and high note. We are called to taste and see that the Lord is good, even as we were physically reminded of this morning. 
In verse 29, we have a, a little verse set all by itself, it appears. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Here is the last gasp of prayer. And it's a cry for salvation, if nothing else. It sums up in one phrase how Messiah feels and how we ought to feel as we appeal to God in prayer for help and aid as well. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then he begins to unpack it. May I not get what I deserve. I don't deserve to be on high. I feel so broken and crushed. But may I get what I do not deserve. And then the next three verses, may you get what you do deserve, O God. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. The humble will see it. And be glad for you who seek God. Let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own who are prisoners. This is an ending song of praise in the prayer which David gives. And you know that really on some level surprises us, does it not? What we expect is more like some other psalms. From the depths of woe I raise to thee the voice of lamentation. Now, R.U.S. giving it a nice little tune, a little catchy tune. But the voice of lamentation is what we expect. Not the voice of adoration. Not the voice of praise. When we cry out to God, save me, help me, I'm drowning. Here, David models for us and puts in our mouths as well as the mouth of the Savior a voice of adoration. And Jesus, taking these words on His lips, set His face and marched towards the cross, despising its shame, singing praise to His heavenly Father. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before Him. And finally, the psalmist says, may we, may all of us, may all of us together Give you, O God, what you do deserve. There is this benediction of universal adoration. Let heaven and earth praise Him. The seas and everything that moves in them. And why are we singing this praise? Why is all creation called upon to sing? Because God will save Zion. He will build up her cities. We shall live there. We shall possess it. There shall be offspring. They will know and love the name of the Lord and dwell in His house, in His place. Oh, taste and see that God is good. Though you walk in the valley of the shadow, though you feel crushed and laden down, though you feel drowning under the waters, God indeed rightly expresses your frustration and your anger. And He rightly calls you to come and to praise, and to sing. You're a sinner. 
you have many occasions on which to rightly feel the burden of shame and dishonor. But your Savior has died to pay for your guilt and right you with God. And He has suffered and died in order to welcome you with open arms into His kingdom, into His house, into the place prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. God loves you. He welcomes you and cares for you. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that You would help us to hear the voice of Jesus as He cries out in isolation and distress. And also, O God, as He lifts up His voice in judgment, we pray that we too might join His voice in praise and thanksgiving, in adoration of You, for indeed in Him You have saved us to the uttermost. And we'll give You all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.